millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Summer vacation, here we come. Yep, I packed the craft beers I got at Total Wine. Did you remember a bathing suit? No, but I did pack a bunch of summer wines. Whites, rosés, Zinfandels. Wondrous selection, helpful guides, ridiculously low prices. Total Wine and more. Hello, my name is Dave Hanrady and there will be no encore. Welcome back to the show. Welcome back to another episode of our track-by-track album breakdown series. We've had Pillow Queens, Alvaretti, Denise Chyla and Merley so far, and all of them have been really, really fun to do. Uh, It's as simple as it sounds. Talk to the artists, listen to what they have to say about their new album, go track-by-track through the whole thing, and see what conversation stems out of it. Thank you so much for all the great feedback we've gotten so far. It is encouraging me to do more. It's a very busy time for Irish music, and a good one too. And with that in mind, we welcome Paddy Hanna to the dance. His new album, The Hill, just dropped on Friday. And I will say that a second listen to this one makes all the difference. Beyond that, you kind of choose your own adventure. Uh, If you're unfamiliar with Paddy, he is, I would say, one of the most unique musicians in this country. He's making music which not many other people are making. And... I think he's a very, very engaging guy. I first encountered him back in 2011, a few months into my internship at Hot Press Magazine, uh, which we often reference on this show, of course. Um, Cramped around a low table in the Exchequer Bar. Remember those days? Remember doing that? Uh, In the Capitol, alongside Paddy and his Grand Pocket Orchestra collaborator, Mark Chester, I couldn't stop laughing, man. I mean, I was absolutely pissing myself, to be honest with you. It was all very unprofessional. Uh, Paddy tends to have that effect. He can be an unusual guy, um, maybe a little bit eccentric, and I think he's all the more memorable for it, as is the music that he makes. 
Um, I think back on that time and like Grand Pocket Orchestra were one of the outfits which were championed by a local independent label called Popical Island, an imprint I just couldn't connect to. I just couldn't get into it, what they were doing. Then like, fair enough, it just wasn't my thing. Uh, I think Grand Pocket Orchestra were probably one of the more credible outfits, but it was all kind of reliably scattershot. Like, you know, a party I wouldn't be invited to and wouldn't want to go to. But going out on his own, uh, Paddy would develop into an intriguing solo proposition, first putting out debut album Leafy Stiletto in 2014. Um, 2018's Frankly I Mutate would confirm this commitment, talent, and singular vision. In between that album and this one, he would link up with Mark Chester again, conjuring up knowing pop outfit Outremond, the prolific spirit on full display. And by the way, if you've never heard On the Record by that band, check it out immediately. It's so much fun. But The Hill, which arrived last Friday, Paddy's third solo album. It's very different. It's born out of many things, not least in professional melancholy regarding the performance of Frankly I Mutate, and we get into that during this conversation and a whole lot more. But The Hill is also about personal and existential struggles, some specifically Irish, others universal, and others beyond that arguably only recognisable to the author himself. A discordant veil hangs heavy over an album that's firmly rooted in the abstract. The Hill is unlikely to capture you on its first listen. It may take more than two or three, but patience is rewarded as time opens up one of the most interesting, unique, and intimate listens of this year. And if all that sounds a bit too much for an episode like this, rest assured, Patty is a skilled raconteur, and an afternoon in his company, microphones switched on, always yield something of value. The album is The Hill, the artist is Patty Hanna. Now we're going to go through this thing track by track. Fresh off the bus and back in the studio. It's Paddy Hanna. What's the story, man? Oh, it's... What can I say, you know? There's a... Trying to be productive doing nothing. Is that possible? Like, is that, like, an easy thing to do? I suppose I should be being creative. <laughs> you know what I mean? I do like doing nothing, though. I do. I, 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 come up, I like to say that, you know, sitting around doing nothing is, is a good way to spark creativity but that's just an excuse for laziness well i mean i think you've been been anything but judging by the evidence what we're here to talk about your new album your third studio album is a solo it's called the hill and it's out now as of this podcast dropping into a few days you've talked about it kind of in the press notes you said we lost ourselves on the hill mm-hmm. daniel daniel adam and i referring to your bandmates uh, half of girl band in there which is very impressive yeah um, you described it as a seemingly endless spell of isolation spent banging sheet metal rusted hubcaps and blistering our fingers through non-stop recording the Hill is an internal musical about how the past and the present exist at the same time in our minds. It deals with the struggles of mental health, the sometimes difficult search for happiness, and the moral conflict of growing up in Catholic Ireland. Most importantly, however, I just wanted to put the past behind me on this record. I wanted to leave it on The Hill. I hope you enjoy my therapy. So there's a lot there before we even hear a note of this. There's a lot in that kind of statement of intent, I guess. I had to make it sound interesting. <laughs> You know, yeah, um, th- th- there's a lot to kind of unpack on the record. And um, I know I, I've, I, I try not to go in with a concept. Sometimes I go in with the concept, but it's it's more of an aesthetic concept. Like, I, 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 not necessarily a thematic one, more just a, an aesthetic one. Like, I want it to sound this way. Uh, I want the production to sound a certain way. Nah, 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 nah. And, um, then I try to figure out what it is I'm trying to say as we're making it. It's kind of like a mystery, you know. It's 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 how I do things. I'm, I'm, I like to do things like a puzzle, if that makes any sense. You know. 
I think it does. Um, well, let's start unpacking that puzzle. Let's go piece by piece. We'll start with the opening track. This is called Last of Their Kind. That's the opening track on an 11-track record, last of their kind. Uh, predominantly an instrumental. Feels to me, and I'm sure to others, like kind of like a spaghetti western intro. That's at least the kind of thing that uh, came to mind with me, Marconi or whoever. It has that kind of rich cinematic feel. I know you're a big fan of films, and I'm sure we're going to talk a lot about them. But why did you want to start the album this way in particular? You know, it sort of feels like it should be like it's an overture like it's like it takes certain musical um themes that you think will reoccur in the album and then it doesn't so that wasn't my intention but it's just it's a nice little intro song and it's i just i, I kind of giggle to myself thinking about that it's like oh yeah this this will be the big sort of sweeping intro to the album and then there's just it never comes back again it's almost misleading um it is definitely cinematic. I see. I never think about what I'm going to write. I'm, I, it's just not how I do things. I'll start playing, and if it comes out and it's good, I'm like, good. Let's let's demo that. Let's add some layers to it, some harmonies, and try and finish it as quickly as possible. I, I usually like to. My little philosophy or whatever is like: the quicker you write it, the better it is. Uh, that's just my opinion, but. Um, with this one, I wrapped this one up pretty quickly, and I was like, I like the way it goes from audacious to kind of um, mellow, and it deals with two kind of, like I'm really leaning on Italian cinema for this record, you know? The Italians really um, stepped up for this record, I gotta tell you. And uh, you mentioned Morricone and um, Riz Ortolani, I keep bringing that lad up. He was a big influence on the last record as well, Frankly, I Mutate. Um... So you have the kind of quasi synthy sort of vocal combination, which we'll talk about because it's a big part of the record. Um, and then it goes into, so it's sort of almost like schlocky horror-ish. And then it goes into more Bicycle Thief Cinema Paradiso territory where you have like a little clarinet there and a, a lovely little plucky guitar, which is probably my favorite instrument to record with. It's this little German guitar. Um, Someone said, oh, it's a nice ukulele, and they, uh, it almost got smashed over their head. It's not, <laughs> not a goddamn ukulele, I'll tell you that much, Sonny Jim. But it's just got this really lovely sound that when you record it, it just sounds sampled, you know? And um, there's a little double bass there as well. And um, so, yeah, it just I, I, I like the, the contrast of it. And um, I, as I say, I, I, rap, I finished it real quick and uh, thought, well... And this this will be a good intro track. You mentioned the idea of playing with listener expectations there. I mean, at what point do you get a handle on that? Because obviously you got to deliver something that is, you know, acceptable and enjoyable to the listener's ear. But at the same time, 
you know, I guess it must be fun to kind of withhold convention sometimes because this record, I think, you know, it works. I think it works predominantly as a full-on piece in one go. Even like doing this track by track today, I'm kind of mindful that the snippets aren't telling the full story, and they often don't. But like, it's that interesting kind of balance, I suppose. I mean, you've already said that your manager, or not your manager, your label boss, Googie in Galway, was like, "Where are the hits?" Because uh, <laughs> they're not on here. Yeah, I, I mean, I felt bad. I said that in an interview, um, and. Um, I felt kind of bad afterwards, but he saw the funny side in it. And, you know, the truth hurts sometimes. But no, it's true. Like, I was bricking it as well when we finished it. I think, well, like, there's, it's, there's not a lot of commercialness on this record, but it's like, who gives a flying F? And um, and also, who who are we to determine what will or will not be successful or commercial? I mean... I, uh, you know, I like a broken record here, but um, did anyone think "Woo Woo 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 Woo" by the Five Six Seven Eights was going to be a hit? No, they didn't. So shush, <laughs> is how I look at that. You know, when people say, you know, you got to do something that's got a lot of hit potential on it, I'm like, what do you, what do you, what do you want me to do here, Sunshine? I'm the, this isn't like the I'm not like some jobbing songwriter in the 1960s. You know, I'm just I do things my way. I I, I write like. Um, what I perceive to be good, and I cross my fingers and hope that people like it. I mean, it's a ghastly idea that, you know, you are writing with the intention of trying to please people. I mean, why why are you trying to, who are these people and why are you trying to please them? It's like, I'm trying to spoon feed people with what I perceived f- to be good. I think you should just write the way you write and hope that people like it. Sometimes you're going to get pee-peed on, other times you know people will hopefully find some truth in that yeah I, um you got me off on a tangent here but that's what this is for man that's John, what i want johnny rants a lot um yeah i i like I, I did say to googie i'll give you i'll give you some hits but they're probably not going to wind up like hitty sounding things they're going to be a bit strange but that's cool i like i like strange I mean, it's not like you don't know that world. I mean, you look at something as recent as like Outremond and a song like On the Record, which absolutely is, you know, a skyscraping radio song, like any day of the week. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, with Outremond, with that record, you see, again, I, I love the mystery of the creative process um, where you're sort of working away and you're trying to ask the question, what is it we're doing here? It's a nice little thing to do. You know, and when you get those revelations, when you finally figure out what the point of this create, creative endeavor is, it's cool. And with Outremond, I was sat at a piano, a grand piano, I'm not afraid to say. Posh Cooney was there with his bass guitar. Onzi was there on drums. And we're sort of noodling away. And we just start playing this, you know, almost yacht-rocky kind of track and that sort of spark went off. And I was like, you know what this is like? This is like, we were, I feel as though we were a band from the 1960s, okay? And we had a few hits and things were going well. But then the 70s happened. We did F all. We went out of, you know, we totally went out of the loop. No one cared about us anymore. And then we tried to make a comeback in the 1980s, but we gave into the system we're just like let's just try and make something that's very zeitgeisty and now and that's kind of you know our, our go-to example was starship you know 
Jefferson Airplane, who became Jefferson Starship, who became Starship. They started off with one peel makes you nervous. And then that somehow led to we built this city on rock and roll. So we wanted the Ultramon record to be a band who were like super dangerous, who are now suddenly making we built this city on rock and roll. And we built a whole album around that. And we the, the main thing also was like, you can't be po-faced doing that. That was our idea. It was like, we can't be kind of like nudging you saying, hey, ain't this funny? If there's going to be a sax solo, the, you know, we, you have to feel the sax solo. I mean, the cheese has to be dripping off it like fondue, but you have to, there has to be real intent there as well. That was how we went into it. So it's like a very serious, silly record. I guess with this, though, with the solo album, I mean, is it nice to kind of have that balance to be able to, I guess, play both characters, so to speak? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, but like with Outremond, it's um, I'm I am but a quarter of the whole product, you know. Um, so yeah, I'm I am but one of many uh, voices, and so you know, there's that relationship there between performance. I mean, like with this record, I, I've always been rather inclusive in how I do music. I'm, the last thing I am is some kind of dictator. Um, the last thing I'm going to do is get someone to play on one of my records and tell them, this is what you're playing. You know, you have to give... If, if you have someone working on your record who you, presumably you think is an incredibly talented, interesting performer, you want them, them to give part of themselves to the record, you know? Um, or you could compromise and say, I want you to play this, but then we'll do another take and you add a bit of your own flourish and we'll see what what's better. That's track number two. It's called Cannibals. I, I was saying to you off mic before we started, I just watched a film about cannibalism at the weekend. Raw, French horror film from 2015, 2016. I thought it was fucking awesome. Um, was, uh, the timing of this, I guess, is fortuitous. It, uh, I also watched a, a Seth Korean revenge movie last night that uh, featured cannibalism as well. So this is this is how far I go with these things, man. Like, like I really go all in and try and inhabit the kind of artist I'm talking to. And that's, that's where you led me. That's what, that's what makes you stand out. <laughs> You know, that's what separates you from the average Joe. Yeah, the Ray Darcy's of the world, I suppose. Hey, that guy that guy puts money in my pocket. Leave him alone. <laughs> <laughs> all right? He's, he's a fine broadcaster, you know, like he's all good. Um, I, I guess, you know, to keep uh, like on the cinema theme for a second, yeah. um, with regards to whether it's an extreme film or whether it's, you know, just something that wasn't working for you, have you ever walked out of a film back when cinemas were a thing? Um, I saw... Uh, Cannibal Holocaust which is a movie I reference a lot and the IFI Horror Thon right so I had never seen the uncut version of Cannibal Holocaust before um, and it's one of those rare movies where I would actually recommend you watch a more censored version than the uncut version because the uncut version there is animal cruelty um gratuitous animal cruelty I mean there's like a film like Heaven's Gate right which has a battle scene where a bomb went off 
like kind of like what was supposed to be just like a prop and it killed a horse and the shot is apparently in the movie. Now, they were acting like assholes and they did put the horse in a position where it was not safe. But ultimately, it was an accident. Do you know what I mean? They had that uh, that slight get-out-of-jail-free card of like, it was an accident, even though they were acting like pricks. Cannibal Holocaust, They are. there is no accident here. They are purposefully murdering animals uh, on screen for some kind of um, sick pleasure. Um, I didn't walk out, but a lot of people did. And the director of the, mer- the movie, Ruggiero Didato, actually came up and did a little talk afterwards. It was a big surprise. And he had very broken English, but he, he had a translator with him. And boy, did a few people in the audience give him a piece of their mind about uh, the misconduct. He he regrets it and it was completely unnecessary and it didn't serve the movie in any way, shape or form. So I've never walked out, I don't, like I've never walked out of a movie uh, unless it was something like this is this is rubbish and I, I, I'm just going to leave. I, I don't think so. I mean, no, nah, I tend to just, just, just suffer through it. And um, on the subject of extreme cinema and whatnot, here's... The, see, I was before we did this, I was like, am I going to prepare for this? Because if I prepare for this, it might be a bit too academic and it might be a bit dull or whatever. And you can hear me leafing through pages saying, ah, ah, no, no, I wanted to talk about this. <laughs> I figured we'd be more spontaneous. And luckily, it's, it's about to pay off because I just remembered what this song was originally going to be. And I, I, um, it was originally... I was originally going to write it about the Video Recordings Act from the 1980s, when they, the Video Nasties scandal. And I was going to call it the Video Recordings Act, you know, getting back to that whole commercial <laughs> discussion, you know? So it was, it was going to be all about, you know, Mary Whitehouse and movies that were banned and stuff like that. And my goal, and I don't know what I was on at, t- at the time, but I wanted film critic Mark Kermode to play double bass on the track. And I was like... I was like, I'm going to go to London. I'm going to hang outside BBC and see if I can get him to play double bass. And he can, he can play a mean um, double bass. Good good slappy sound and whatnot. So I was like, a song about the Video Nasties era with Mark Kermode on double bass. And um, I decided not to do that in the end. I decided instead to um, focus on... Um, um, more serious subject matter. Well, I suppose you could argue the Video Nasties era was. By the way, if you don't know what I'm talking about, that it was basically in the 80s and early 90s, they banned loads of movies in the UK um, because they said they were corrupting the youth. It was the same thing that was happening in the 1980s in America, the, the satanic panic, basically, when they were like burning Judas Priest records and all that. And um, like if you had a copy of like SS Experiment Cap or something, you could be arrested. Um, and um, yeah, so that's what I wanted to write about. But I changed my mind and instead wrote about Catholicy stuff. It was a more innocent time. I remember that well. I remember reading about it in, in magazines. I mean, like, I wasn't coming of age in the mid to late eighties. I was alive though. But I remember reading yeah. about it in the nineties and just being like, "This sounded completely insane." Who could imagine outlawing like you know people like raiding your house for a Clockwork Orange and that kind of stuff? Yeah. And then of course, like Ireland, like all of a sudden, like showing a film like a Clockwork Orange in like two thousand or something was this huge public event. You know, people probably still ringing Joe Duffy about it. Yeah, I mean, the all they did was give power, like huge amounts of power and notoriety, to what. 
were mostly a bunch of really forgettable, crappy movies that were nothing more than like shocking. The titles were more shocking than the actual content of the films. Do you know, there was a movie called The Gestapo's Last Orgy. And I haven't seen it because it's like almost impossible to find. But basically, like I'm talk- talking to you about this movie now because it was banned. If it had never been banned, I probably wouldn't even have heard of it. So don't, um, if you censor art, I guess you give it a lot more power. I think that's that's what we learn. This is like the parental advisory sticker, you know. You slap parental advisory on a two on a on like a Pantera record or something and suddenly sales go up. Oh yeah. It's a market quality. It's a market teenage rebellion quality for sure. I mean, people were buying t-shirts with parental advisory stickers on them. I guarantee like, this fucking tattoos with that, man. You know what I mean? Like it's just like this incredible iconic thing that was meant to be this off-putting thing. It's uh, yeah, it's it's it, it's definitely like you know, they were doing that in like the 80s, you know? And just taking and like like, you know, I'm not going to say that like like so many albums with parental advisory stickers are like classics, you know. So many, a lot of the video nasties are classics, but a lot of it was just garbage, <laughs> and they just increased the sales and the notoriety of garbage. So, vocally on this one, like the vocals, I think the vocals throughout the record are interestingly arranged and I guess mastered and produced because, like, at times they're very like like they wash through you, and you do have to kind of stop and think. It's not that they're indecipherable. But they're definitely bedded in a certain layer here, which I wonder, you know, what is the stylistic point of that, especially when you're writing about, I guess, confrontational issues? Because on this one, like, they, you know, it's very theatrical, it's quite macabre, and, like, it's definitely a barrage. And there are times when I kind of had to really kind of tune everything else out to really hear what you were saying. And even then, I'm not entirely sure, if I'm honest. Yeah, but it's that kind of staccato vocal style. So it's it's going to be hard to wrap around. I, 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 Tend to overthink. Maybe overthink. Sometimes I overthink it. But like, how's how's the vocal going to be on this track? And um, sometimes I get it straight away. Other other times I'm like, oh, I need to really. Oh, maybe that vocal's not going to work. And in this one, I was like, let's let's just rock lobster this thing. <laughs> you know, let's be fifty two it up. Um, so I I mean, you know, it's it's very kind of. Uh, there's a bit of screaming Lord Such there. Um, murder in the graveyard kind of thing. It's very Halloween-y. I mean, you can really see that I wanted to make um, a horror-inflected song in this one. But I, I thought it would be more powerful to make the subject matter. You know, so let's take away all this video nasty stuff. Let's take away this Mark Kermode pipe dream. And let's change the lyrics up to be about you know um the idea that um religion if you want or catholicism was very very often usurped by people who sort of took it, took advantage of it um in grotesque and horrid fashions you know make like a real horror as opposed to a fictionalized horror yeah, I mean, you flat out state in the album notes, like you mentioned, as we said, the moral conflict of growing up in Catholic Garland. I mean, is that something that you've always kind of struggled with? Or is it something that has manifested to the point where, like, I need to make art out of this? I need to confront it this way? It was always coming. I remember I was talking to a guy called Micah P. Hinson, a very good songwriter out of, I think he's from Dallas, Texas. And um, at one point I wanted to, I was like, really, I was like, I wanted to do a record with him about 
the, the what you just mentioned and I wanted to record it with him in Dallas and just the idea of having that escapism where you're not in Ireland anymore you're in a place you're completely unfamiliar with you're in Texas you know and that's where you write your piece about the conflict of uh, uh, being an Irish Catholic and whatnot. Uh, it didn't happen, and instead, it, you know, those themes kind of wound up in the hill. And the conflict is something I'm sure many Irish Catholics face. You know, I like I had positive, like I like you know, my granduncles were both priests. You know, family friends of my parents priests. You know, never, never like all lovely. Never a bad word to say about them all. Absolute lovely folks, you know. I It's wild, wild, widely believed that I was saved by a miracle when I was born. Yeah, I was born with a kidney stone um, that uh, uh, as a baby is not something you want as a newborn. And I was given last rites, right? This is true. Last rites. I was baptized in the hospital um, because of my tender little head, which is now a massive head. Um, my uncle, granduncle, I should say, baptized me with a. He sucked up the holy water using a, a syringe, which had the needle removed, and squirted it onto my head and baptized me in the church. The following day, the kidney stone completely vanished. Doctors were completely unable to explain how any of this happened. And, um, you know, that's been the story that I was saved by a miracle and whatnot. So these are my experiences growing up as an Irish Catholic, they don't sound bad, do they? And yet, that's in some ways where the guilt comes from, because when you hear other people's stories, um, and, uh, it, you know, but also the teachings that will come from certain clerics, you know, don't go near these people, and, um, you know, uh, mistrust, or what religion made me feel, feeling kind of silly to think, you know, it's a it's a weird way to grow up and have a school that's a Catholic school and then you have a Protestant school next to it and they're separated by a big fence, you know? It's just weird and you look through there, you peer through and you see people who look the same as you. They're not wearing uniforms, which I always thought was, was wild in national schools. Like, wow, they get to wear their own clothes, those heathens. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this fence is here to protect us from their fangs and all these kind of things. So, you know, I mean, that's that's sort of the light end of it. But it's just, you know, as I mentioned, like, I grew up surrounded by very positive Catholic figures. But there was also a lot of bile. There was also a lot of mistrust. Um, and that's where the conflict really comes from. Uh, and then, of course, when we go into the real horrid, sickening end of the dealings of the Catholic Church in Ireland, that's, that really messes with the conflict and that's where the guilt comes from. You know, and there's a lot of guilt on this record and it's not necessarily a a kind of, you know, I killed someone and I buried the body guilt, but it's a sort of like, you know, complacency guilt of, did you s speak up or act? But then it was like, I was just a little kid and unfortunately, I very often believed um, hateful rhetoric and that's an unpleasant thing to reconcile with when you're growing up 
I don't, and that's why like, I'm asking the question because I don't really talk to people. I'm not a very theological person. But it's like, do, do many of us have that kind of guilt? And has it affected you throughout your life? Have you just had that kind of moment where you just had one too many drinks and you're like, why did I drink so much last night? And was it because something triggered that, you know, and does it relate to your religious upbringing and a sense of guilt? You know, I am sounding very theological now all of a sudden. But that's that's a question I wanted to ask, anyways. That's track number three, A Strange Request, Something of a Dreamlike Wonder. Very whimsical, uh, very, again, theatrical. Um, I was going to ask you about any strange requests you may have made. I do want to ask about ones you may have received as well. You've already given me the Mark Kermode one of you potentially stalking the halls of the BBC with a giant double bass waiting for him to emerge from his latest Christopher Nolan review. Um, Like, I guess when putting together an album of this nature, or just even like in your career to date, I guess, yeah, what kind of strange requests have you made of people? Um, well, I, I tend to request incredibly ridiculous things because I, uh, I said, like, you'd want to, this is why I should have asked Daniel to be here, little Danny Fox, producer, bass player, keyboardist and whatnot, because he's the one who has to deal with all the ridiculous requests, you know, could you make the song airier and yes, or, or, you know, it's, uh, my partner is a graphic designer and, you know, she'll tell you. You know, could you make something bluer or could you make something pop? You know, these awful buzzwords <laughs> that people throw in. And Daniel, owing to the fact that I don't know any of these technical terms, I'm sure as a musician, I know a lot of technical terms that the average Joe, if you want to say that, might not know. But to someone like Daniel, you know, who knows the minutia, I will say a lot of stupid things to him, you know, in order to emphasize how I want a song or a theme to sound. So, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm not certainly one that would make a lofty request. You know, bring me, bring me my wine, for I must sip. You know, I, I'm not demanding, I don't think. Um, I'm sort of babbling while I try to think of some mad request someone might have asked... I, I oh, oh yeah okay, um, I could seg this into uh, being a tour guide, and um, that's I mean uh, people, you know hey stup- hey Viking boy, because I I had to dress up like a Viking you see and go around on a big yellow boat telling people about stuff. I still can't believe you worked in the Viking slash tour. Why is that so shocking to you? It just seemed okay. Maybe it does seem like a party Hannah thing to do. Yeah, I mean like he would have people doing you know stag parties, the worst. Uh, a bunch of drunk dudes, you know, all looking, all you know, because they all want to be the alpha. Because when there's when you get that many 
when there's that, that much dude energy and they're all drunk, you know, they're all looking at, they all think they're the alpha all of a sudden and they're not going to laugh at anything you say. They're just going to be like, huh, think you're funny, don't you, Viking boy? So that's awful. Hen parties, on the other hand, had a lot of fun. Whenever I hear the H word, I'd be like, ooh, fun hen party. You know, throw down, laugh at the jokes, have, have a bit of fun, all that kind of stuff. Lots of exchanges like that. Um, Tell me of one in particular, though, because, I mean, on this track, I hear quite the, I, I guess, the showman in you on this one. It's, it's on lots of tracks, but it's here for sure. That kind of big baritone vocal that we heard there. Um, you have, of course, played support to Burt Bacharach in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering what kind of tips you might have learned from the man, what kind of influence you took, what that night was like in general. Um, I know I'll never be as cool as he is. That's for sure. Um, you know, less is more. Don't you don't have to walk into a room and scream like you're Gilbert Gottfried, you know? Stand at the back, be mellow, be nice. People will come to you. That's that's definitely a way of doing uh conducting things, you know. We we had pints with him after the show and it was the same thing. He's just like, I'm gonna stand here and let people come to me, you know? I'm also he's like ninety one, so it's not like he's gonna be cartwheeling about the place. But um yeah, um I think, you know, we recorded this album before we gigged with um, that whole crew. And so there was no influence of any of that on the actual record. But um, um, if the next album, um, album number four, is a little bit more debonair, you'll know why. This will be Paddy Plays the Hits, volume two. Yeah, yes, exactly. It'll be full of hits and it'll be debonair. And um, no, that was cool because the musicians—they were all Vegas musicians—and I've I've talked smack about Vegas in the past, saying like, you don't want to just become a Vegas entertainer, you know, someone who's sort of cashed in their creative chips and just goes out to stud in some sort of casino or something. But I've changed my mind on that one. Like the the respect for these Vegas musicians—they're gas. You know, the, his horn player. It was like side of stage chatting to us and he was like the classic kind of old school musician guy. His wig was like 10 feet above his head. <laughs> you know what I mean? You could, it was basically hovering over his head and he had his, his little trumpet with him and he was chatting to a couple of us about like, yeah, and then Tom Jones, I'll tell you, he, he, that guy can hold his beard just a second and he just walked out on stage and just did a perfect horn solo with the spotlight on him. But, and then just without skipping a beat walks back off stage and continues the conversation. <laughs> I was like, Damn. I want to do that. That's cool. So, yeah, if if you want a good time, hang out with some Vegas musicians. You have a good time. So to clarify, you now do want to go out to Stoda at a Vegas casino someday? If it did happen, I wouldn't feel as I did five years ago when I talked smack in an interview about Vegas musicians. I I rescind my comments. That's track number four. It's called Nameless. And um, I'm going to hurl a sound like that, you know, that thing that musicians love. I got a real early arcade fire. You know, the good arcade fire off this one. <laughs> I Do you remember there was an animated 
thing called eyebrowy. I do, yeah. For those of you who don't recall, it was just like it was like an animated series, real kind of South Park style, I suppose. Would you could say it like that kind of very sort of low, low, low-fi animation? Would you say low-fi animation? But anyways, it was kind of taking the Mickey out of Irish music and whatnot. And there were these two characters in it that were kind of like the obnoxious know-it-all music types. And I, uh, there was, the, I remember them talking about Arcade Fire. Yeah, you know, Arcade Fire. They really know. Them. And it, I'm convinced that those two characters are based on myself and a friend of mine, because we used to pipe on about Arcade Fire, like you know, in like Wheelands or something. And when I was like 21, and I'm like, just f- full of opinions and just you know a total knob. Um, but uh, that just reminded me of that there. Um, yeah, I mean, it's I, I guess um, there maybe it sounds a bit like early Arcade Fire. I suppose the piano. Is a bit like that. Um, it's that like, kind of baroque, rushing avant pop thing. Well, it wasn't always that rushing. Let me tell you, <laughs> the song was originally two minutes in and out. Like it started, and then the vocals came in. It was a, a tight two minutes. But as we were recording it, I just loved. I loved the sound of the drums. Uh, Adam was playing. He had this really cool kit that. I'm sure if Daniel were here, he would tell you the name of the kit. If you're listening to the show, by the way, and you're wanting to hear some technical stuff, if you're a real muso, sorry, um, you're just getting bladder. Um, but yeah, the sound of the drum kit, I loved. The sound of the double bass, I just really, really loved all the tones on this track, including um, Danny Fitzpatrick's guitar. All those kind of noises, that's mostly guitar. And there's also, like we... we this would be this is a very found soundtrack um so what we did was we while we were recording this Jamie Highland the um engineer and little Adam Faulkner went out into the wild and uh, I I demanded that they do this this would be one of my strange requests I want you to go out into the wild with a recording device and record yourself banging random things. And that's what they did. They found a little boatyard there in Baltimore and West Cork and threw stones at um, sort of corrugated iron sheets and sort of picked up chains and threw them on the ground and stuff like that. And we peppered these sounds into the whole record. And you can really hear them on this track. And the the opening of Cannibals actually starts with a do-do-do-do-do-do-do. That was recorded, I think, on the last night. Adam was there with him recreational cigarette in his mouth um, hitting I think like a hubcap or something a piece of a car anyways with two little chopsticks um, but on this track it's very we, we th- th- there is a corrugated iron um, sheet getting a good old beating and um, uh, yeah I was just very happy with the tone of this one um, why did we go for found sounds because we wanted on the one hand, to have this really p- lovely posh sound of the lovely, just warm as can be sound of a double bass and a lightly brushed drum kit in a room that's really nicely padded out, a bit like your nice studio here, you know, where everything sounds dry. And then we wanted to add a found sound feel. So you've got the lovely warmth and then you just have a... Like you can hear the air and all that. So we wanted to mix the warm with the kind of airy coldness. Um... That yeah, that's what we, pretty much every track is, is kind of warm and cold. 
This is like fire and ice. This very spinal tap. <laughs> um, so yeah, the track's called Nameless. Did you ever consider a stage name upon like starting to do solo material, or was was it always just like I'm going to go by my name? That's who I am. Yeah, no, I didn't. I I was like, it's going to be. There's going to be a tough few years of people thinking you're a folk musician, or people thinking, you know, when's he going to play the spoons? You know. Uh, but I was like, I'm sticking with it. And like Patty is not, uh, as a name, it's not one that makes you think alternative musician, you know? That's how I feel. But I was like, you know what? I'm just going to stick with it. I'm going to go through the wilderness for a while of people thinking this is Mr. Hey Diddly Ho, man. That sounds like a line from a band you love. Um, <laughs> Which band, sorry? <laughs> oh, we'll talk after the show. But um, <laughs> Leave it all on mic, man. Um, but... Um, no, I didn't. I didn't even think for a second. The set, the when I decided to do the solo stuff, I was like, "It's going to go through my own name, and I'll deal with the consequences of people thinking I." More like maybe people didn't think that. I don't know. It's very presumptuous on my part, but yeah, I was like, "I'll just do my own name." Also, it's like you know, on a paranoid level, there's that sense of you know. You know, it's my name, so there'll never be any question of who's in charge. So there's a, maybe there's a bit of arrogance there as well. You, know? you could always throw like a an axe on, on one of the A's just to fuck with people, you know? Um, what, what, what do you mean by that? In terms of just like, you know, the kind of like the straightforwardness perhaps of the name Patty for some people. Ah. Just to really kind of mess it up. Make it European. Patrick, Hannah. <laughs> Padraig. Yeah, yeah. I remember a friend of mine years ago was in Galway um, at some boxing event and there was an English announcer and he was like, ladies and gentlemen, the pride of Galway, Padraig Keneally. <laughs> like, oh um, I don't know. I think names are fucking like, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I'm, I'll never be a solo musician. It'll never happen. But I find that my name is too unwieldy. I can barely even say it. I've been told a couple, like so it's been pointed out that Paddy and Hannah are the same amount of letters. It's good. So from a design point of view, it looks good on a poster. It's nice. Yeah, yeah, it's tight. Also, if you think about it, uh, outside of Ireland and perhaps England and the United States in a place like, let's say, um, oh, Japan randomly, it sounds rather Ooh, never heard that before. And it's also, you know, it's got a Paddy Hanna. It's got a rhythm to it. Um, so um, in more foreign climes, it would actually sound kind of fun and cool. But I guess in Ireland, it's, you know, there's a, lo- a lot of Paddies, I suppose. Paddy Cossadine. I know he's not Irish, but you, he's all, he's another Paddy. Comes over here on occasion, I think, you know. He's making a movie recently. When travel is allowed. Uh, just don't play the spoons, though, I think is the, is the lesson here. I'm not very good at the spoons. You tried it? I mean, yeah, you just get a couple of spoons and you play them. It's, it's, you know, everyone's got a couple of spoons lying around.
so that's uh, that's track number five. We're getting to the we're getting we're approaching the midpoint of the album now. It's very exciting. Um, smoke like vocals, haunting even I would suggest. Mm-hmm. Kind of like a like a like a wronged ghost. <laughs> you know that's that's you know, sometimes we all feel like ghosts, don't we? Um, this one again, the Daniel little Danny Fox loved the loved this demo, and we tried to keep it as much like the demo as possible. At this point. You know, it's worth noting that all of the most of the tracks have this combination of vocals and synthesizers that going in we knew we wanted to do for this record. So there's no string sections at all on this record for two very simple reasons. One, we wanted to save money. And Aina, who so wonderfully did the strings for, uh, wrote the arrangements, um, since working on, frankly, uh, her fee had gone up, uh, justifiably, of course, because she's wonderful. But is Dana Brennan? Uh, that's it? correct. Yes, but also, I mean, that's you know, that's just part of it, really. The other one is that usually when I demo, I do all the arrangements using vocals. It's very, as I say, based on the melodies hummed by Garth Marenghi. You know, so yeah, usually I will emulate string sections. Like when we were doing, frankly, I mutate. And I was humming the sort of principal melody, like for uh, the principal violin melody that Aina would then r- write the sort of harmony lines through. I w- she would have to sort of sit down with sheet music while I stood over her going <laughs> like that. I mean, it's a gruesome sight if you were to walk into a room and just see her there with her quill and her sheet music. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, um, a strange sight. But um, so... We just thought, like, why don't we just do a record where we just use the vocals as in in that fashion as they were in the demos? But we wanted to kind of create a unique tone that was unique to this record. So what we did was we did all the vocals, but also with every vocal line, with all the there's also a synthesizer that's called a poly ensemble. Yes, I know the name of one of these instruments. It's called a poly ensemble. And uh, I think it's Korg who make it. But it's like, so that's playing underneath the vocals. So we wanted to blend the synthetic with the non-synthetic to create a a tone that would sort of be just for this record. And um, again, it's it's the whole contrasting thing. You know, again, what I was saying about the warmth of the room mixed with the coldness of the field recordings. And then you have the contrast of the uh, of the very obviously synthetic synthesizers and the natural vocals. So this, I suppose this song is kind of the most obvious example of that. And um, I don't think I played any of the instruments on this track either. I think they, they, they Daniel Fitzpatrick played the principal acoustic line on this one because they, oh he's such a better player than you nah, 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 nah. so um, he got to play the acoustic line but I sung damn it <laughs> yeah I've got like visions of you being locked out of the studio by by Daniel Fox how um, I guess you know like Dan Fox of course girl band Adam from girl band like how do you assemble you know your your band like like is it a case of well this is there or did you specifically want to you know create something with that regard and at what point do you like at what point are you satisfied like like i guess like as a solo artist you're like i've got my band but i'm still me and i'm still in control of this yada yada you know like that that kind of whole process always strikes me as quite fascinating for someone who might very well have frequent collaborators as well 
Well, I'm very lucky in that I get to work with these people. I mean, I'm lucky that they say yes, which, um, you know, that's the coolest thing of all. Um, I mean, Adam comes on board and immediately I'm like, well, I want, I want some... I want some weirdness out of you, buddy, you know? Adam considers himself... He, he, he doesn't see himself as a drummer. He sees himself as a percussionist. So, you know, if you look at his girl band drum kit, I mean, half the cymbals are cobbled together bits of metal that he clangs to make those abrasive sounds that the um, girl band are so known for. And um, I wanted that. I mean, obviously, he had to do the more mellow stuff, which he was very happy to do, but he, I also wanted, yeah, I wanted to set him loose in the candy store, you know? So go, you. Um, have total freedom finding these percussive tones and let's pepper them throughout the record. At one point, in one of the last nights, we sort of, we just let him loose and it was really good fun. At one point, he was, we had, he was standing in two baking trays filled with gravel and he was, walking on them <laughs> for that rum, rum, rum sound and he had um, he found two little bits of firewood and he went outside to the driveway where there were these kind of like sort of uh, stone slates that the car would park on and he just started hitting the stone slates and that would become the drum intro to a track we'll talk about later in the record but um, it's ironic that we're talking about Adam's percussion uh, the one song that doesn't have any percussion on it, I just realised. But there you go. My Ladybird. That's track number six. It's Sinatra. It's an Italian murder ballad. Now, for anyone who doesn't know what that is, can you please define this? I, you know, they asked me to write a description of the song, which is something that they all, the, whenever you have to do pressy sorts of stuff for albums, they say, could you write descriptions of all the songs? And, you know, you have to give them something interesting. Um, you know, it's a song about my feelings. Great. That's good. You know, but I just, look, right. I, a few years ago, got a chord organ, which is, for those of you who don't know, uh, it's an electric uh, accordion, essentially. Uh, so it's a, like an accordion you plug in and there's a little fan that runs through it, which creates the process of the air, which normally you would have to play an accordion with that big spring like um, Lady and the Tramp and whatnot. Um, so do they have an accordion in that movie? It's been some time since I've seen it. Let's just say that they do. Yeah. My one example of an accordion is Lady and the Tramp. It's a, a I mean... Professional musician, the old page. I said we were going to talk about cinema and, and the classics. That's, that's it. what we're doing. So anyways, I get this um, chord organ um, and I... So I lent it to someone and I didn't see it for a few years, but I got it back and I was really excited when I got it back. Plugged it in 
and I wrote Sinatra. That's basically what happened. I, whatever it was, my excitement to have the instrument again, and that that this, by the way, is something worth noting um, for those of you who are songwriters out there. Getting a new piece of kit can really you get a couple of songs out of that new kit real quick. Um, that's what I often find. Like my favoriteest thing to do is was whenever I'm in, uh, I go over to Spain a lot in uh, Fuengirola, you know, in the Costa del Crime, pew pew pew, and um, <laughs> that's where the murder ballads happen. I yeah, they sing you murder ballads like 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 in, in during altercations and that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I'm like pew pew pew, watch out for me. Uh, but there's it's an amazing. Um, flea market that happens every Saturday in the Feria grounds and um, I always um, whenever I go there which is as often as I can I get um, I have always gotten little Casio keyboards little mini Casio keyboards from the 80s you know the real da 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 keyboards and um, that's the song da 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 by the way which was all done on this little Casio monotone keyboard which I have like five of them now and um it's great to just find some little cheap piece of task that no, that the person selling has no interest in. Here, you can take it for a quid. You bring it home, boom, 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 song, done. I'm a big fan of that process. Um, and uh, that was basically what happened with the chord organ. I was so excited to have it back. I just sat down and started playing it. And obviously, I know well, what the science is, but I guess that level of excitement really knocks down uh, some creative barriers. You know, you're like excited and you just want to get cracking and suddenly you're just... Because, you know, a lot of things inhibit you when you're writing. You know, if you're in a low mood, for instance, you're like, oh, I'm not bothered. Well, I don't, don't want to write any stupid songs. That elevated pheromones, whatever it is that you get from taking that new uh, or newly acquired instrument and just playing it, it really helps. And that's basically what happened with Sinatra. I mean, it was literally like a one and done job. It, was, it, it came out so exactly as, as it is on the guitar. I mean, I even in that session, I took out my Dan Electro and I lay, laid down the guitar solo in that session, uh, like about an hour and a half done, which is always very handy as well. You know, I do feel very often like a total scrounger for you know if i make any money from a song that it took me like an hour and a half to write i just like just the the, the you know the level of effort <laughs> is not deserving of the monetary rewards that may or may not come. but some of those songs like like some of the most famous songs in the world could have taken like five minutes or something. I, I mean, think Robert Smith always said that. Like, if if it takes him a half an hour to write a song, he knows it's a good one. <laughs> if it takes him like two weeks, he knows it's shit. Um, I'm gonna get pretentious for a second. Please do. I've been doing it for the last hour. <laughs> We're at like you know, I, like it's rare that I get the opportunity to be the one you know who gets to like park that for a while. So I'm gonna bring it back in now, full steam. Is there an element of killing the former self when it comes to moving on from album to album? And I'm particularly drawn to another quote from your Irish Times interview with Lauren Murphy. You talked about Frankly I Mutate, a record from two years ago, uh, which we're very fond of on No Encore. I think it's a fucking great record. Uh, you said, with Frankly, I was feeling a little ambitious. With this one, I was kind of broken and crestfallen. I felt that Frankly, in many ways, was kind of a failure. You feel that way as an artist. You'll get all these nice reviews, but you'll get one six out of ten review, and that's you done. With regards to your relationship to that last album, I mean, what constitutes a failure? You know, it's funny you bring that up because I, I remember reading that 
of course I remember it was like two days ago when that interview came out my immediate reaction was like boy do I come off as a moany so and so I don't think so but like the the truth is like that's with this record right I, I'm, I'm referring to how I felt when I was talking to Lauren um, about the record I was speaking to how I felt at the time rather than how I feel now do you know what I mean so like that whole idea of like and this is very true by the way I think it's true of most people in the arts um, you know you will get good reviews and if you get bad review or it's like Twitter as well not what they say like where like you know people will be all nice and then one people would tweet like you're an ass face or something and then that's the only thing you remember that that's the thing that ruins your day um, so that's um, a thing and um, I came into 2019 and I was feeling pretty good I, I was like I had a chat with Miriam O'Callaghan we are doing like some first fortnight gig which was a real ambition of mine because I, I love first fortnight the charity so to play at their big gig so 2019 got off to a flying start and I'd gotten it into my head like you know the arrogance that I was like well I'm definitely going to be on the choice music prize uh, shortlist and I feel so douchey saying this but it's true and then I I didn't make the choice the, the, the shortlist which happens you know and I took it really badly I was like such a mope this is how much I moped my partner in order to get me out of my uh, my mopiness had to buy me tickets to Crufts <laughs> She was like, only only uh, puppies from all over the world can w- w- stop this man's moping. Did you go? Of course. Was it amazing? Yeah, of course it was amazing. It, it was Crufts. I'm, it's the most English thing I've ever been to. I've never <laughs> been to anything more English than it. It's spectacular. There was one bit where a bunch of OAPs and their really sweet little dogs did a synchronized dance number to um, Whatever You Want by Status Quo. <laughs> So it's like whatever you want, din din Well, the owners were like, "Now come, little doggy." It was uh, it was amazing. Um, so that did help. But I learned. Well, I'm still learning this. And um, to any of you out there, um, you know, you, you you get your your ups and, and you, you get your knocks and you take your lumps and you move on. But um, you know, I I, I realized it's like you shouldn't put that much th- uh, like focus on the trinkets and the awards you you have to that shouldn't be why you do this and you shouldn't and i felt in some ways like a fool for getting myself into such a state over something you know like a, a reward like um you know it's it shouldn't be about that but that's how i felt at the time and it was a learning process um so when I say that, frankly, I Mutate was a failure, it's really more I was reflecting on how I felt at the time as opposed to how I do now, which is that I, I'm very proud of it. But So, yeah, and obviously when you put this on paper, it's hard to convey that. The that tone, I was, yeah, I was of in course, the past yeah. tense. And that's totally fine. I, I don't mind that all that much. But, and, yeah, my initial response was that I... I do come off like a moaner in this interview, but with, with some reflection, I'm like, you know what? It's the truth, though. It's it's how I felt. And she said, like, you know, I, I say stuff for fear of 
like, you know, the kind of things that some people would worry would sabotage their careers. But it's just honesty, though. And um, that's how it should be, man. I, I, I mean, like, I'm not like one of these people that's going to, I'm going to say it as it is. And I don't care how you think. <laughs> I'm the opposite of that. I'm like incredibly sensitive about how people, about upsetting someone. But when it comes to talking about my own shit, yeah, I'll talk about it, you know, and I'll be self-deprecating about it because why the heck not? To be fair to you and to Lauren and to the words on the page, she did sign off that paragraph with comma, he laughs. So it's there, you know. We know that you're, uh, we know that you're a good guy. <laughs> <laughs> What's hilarious is I, um, before we did that interview, um, I, I told her over the phone, "Do you mind if I recorded this interview for posterity's sake?" I'm mad paranoid. Yeah, I'm mad paranoid, <laughs> and I'm worried that you're going to say like something brackets he added arrogantly, uh, and I, I, I want to be able to prove, you know. And she. Was, busted my chops over it it was very funny she was like oh you're worried you were gonna throw you under the bus are you <laughs> or you know like all right superstar relax you know so she justifiably put me in my place are you uh are you recording this on your phone right now our, our conversation but it's being recorded yeah but like at the same time you, oh, could have you your could own, edit it to make i can it, do what i want you yeah can i take can, lots of the words and jumble them up are you, like like i'm gonna do so much with that italian stuff you've no idea oh the italian stuff yeah boy that's gonna make me look real bad <laughs> That's track number seven. It's Howling at the Duke of York. Are love songs the best songs? Um, I Yeah, you know what they are. I mean, think about like the Ramones. It's mostly love songs, isn't it? You know, and they, they, they and I love the contrast that they, they pose photographs with like baseball bats and stuff. And then like, you know, I want to be a boyfriend. <laughs> you know, love songs can exist in every capacity. You know, a love song could easily accompany a, a brutal murder scene in, in one of the lovely gory films that we love. Or it could also contrast with a sad scene, for instance. You know, someone is being buried and there's a love song playing over it and there's a heartbreaking quality to that. Or it could just be good old-fashioned, my heart is a flourish, I'm in love, I want to run through a field and sort of prance and uh, while little love heart bubbles fall out of my head. Yeah, I... I Ultimately, I am a very romantic type. Um, I, I am a romantic. And um, not that you would know with all my moaning. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I tend to... I love the, you know, the, the, classic, the classic love song. You know, you got... You, 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 yeah, of course. I love, 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 love songs. Love, love. There's also like that kind of classic bruised energy to it as well, which I think goes a long way. Mm, again, the whole idea of contrast. Um, there's a lot that you can do with a love song where... You know, where the question is asked, like, is this person really in love, for instance? Are they misleading themselves? Are, um, or is there a sense that this is a love that's happening that shouldn't be happening? Um, is it um, two ships passing in the night that are just almost 
you know, it should be perfect, but yes, there's these one little things. The, the, I like love songs. I like the idea of, of asking questions of a love song. Um, I do that all the time. Austria, a song I wrote a while ago. Um, you know, when you underpin a love song with a slight... Uh, morose isn't the word, but I'm just going to say it anyway. With a mildly morose element, it can in some ways confuse the listener into thinking, well, maybe it's not going to pan out. Do you know that Aha, right, um, in Take On Me, you know the famous music video where there's like the comic strip and your man escapes from the comic strip and some lads in helmets uh, with like bars are chasing after him. Yeah, they got fucking lead pipes. It's very serious <laughs> looking business. And they have like pointy noses and stuff. Um, so that video, at the end of the video, your man gets out and he has that kind of sexy Patrick Swayze moment where he's sort of like glistening with sweat as he bashes himself against the walls and uh, he becomes human and they embrace and that's like, oh man, it's going to work out for those kids. You know, he, this man has literally bought himself to life to be with this person and it's incredibly romantic. The follow-up single that AHA did, the music video starts with the two of them breaking up. Why'd you do it, AHA? That's a betrayal. <laughs> I thought those kids was going to make it, AHA. You done broke my heart. I forget the name of the song, but if you, if you look it up, this, the follow-up single to take on me, the music video starts with those two saying it's not going to work out. I missed the comics. I'm going to jump back in. I'll take my chances with the Iron Bar guys. <laughs> Is that the point, though? Like, do we need that kind of heartbreak to keep us even? I mean, it was cruel of them to do that, you know? Um, but, you know, that's what heartbreak songs are for as well, I guess, you know? You listen to the heartbreak songs afterwards. But uh, I do like, as as you mentioned, um, as I mentioned, uh, a, a love song that can raise an eyebrow as well and make you wonder, hmm, I'm not too sure about that now. <laughs> or, like, maybe this guy's misleading himself. You know, I like that too. The title alone, Helling at the Duke York, it does kind of invoke some kind of horror. Um, I guess now is the, probably the best time to talk about some horror movies. All right, let's 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 go for it. It is October. It is Spook Month, and oh. therefore I am currently about ten films into my target of thirty-one horror films for the month. Uh, name a few of them. I'll tell you if I've seen them. Uh, the Neon Demon Raw. I I, lo- I love the Neon Demon. I haven't seen Raw. I saw the Devil. The I saw the devil. What's Seth Korean revenge movie. Raw is the French cannibal movie. You have seen that, haven't you? Uh, I haven't actually seen Raw yet. Oh well, okay, get on it. It's fucking great. Um, what else have I watched? Like, I'm trying to like get a mixture of like art house stuff, like Audition, which really fucks you up, and like some schlock in there as well, like Happy Death Day and like The Strangers too. Yeah. A, a mixture of stuff I've seen and haven't mm-hmm. seen. Uh, Argento's in there though. I'm going to do Inferno and Suspiria. Okay. Uh, what are your go tos? Uh, I like the. I mean, I, I, there's a couple. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, that's not what you think it is. I'm clearing my foot. Um, <laughs> he, he disdainfully, uh, like, <laughs> yes. I have um, every I, I, Ghost Watch. Have you ever seen that? Oh, that's the British show from the eighties. Yeah, it? It yeah. The BBC special. Oh, it's like Mr. Pipes. Yeah, Mr. Pipes. I try to take that in every Halloween whistle, and I'll come to you. Which again is a BBC. It's actually it was a Christmas thing, but it's just a half-hour thing. That uh, Paul Thomas Anderson actually was really inspired by that when he was making the Phantom Thread. Interestingly enough, which, have you seen that film, Phantom Thread? I've yet to, but I'm told I must. It's basically a ghost movie, but without ghosts. Uh, actually, no, it does have a ghost at one point. Spoiler alert. Anyways, um, that's uh, that ruined. Cheers. I'm very sorry. Um, I watched a movie called Nightmare Beach uh, with by Umberto Lenzi, a very Italian 
horror movie but shot in America with like John Saxon and stuff John Saxon who's a you know he's he's one of the great B-movie horror actors he uh, was in um, I watched Wes Craven's New Nightmare recently and he was in that playing himself at yeah. one stage he's just sitting around a playground wearing leisure wear and a, an incredible wig that man could uh, age with a toupee he, he did it quite well yeah he he sort of slowly incorporated the rug like Sean Connery um, <laughs> <laughs> um, what is it? he's in a movie I think it's called is it called I might be wrong here it's Nightmare City I might be wrong uh, oh no no it's Cannibal Apocalypse Slightly different, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that one is basically like they're a bunch of cannibals who go on on the run, basically, and they're being chased. But at one point, he's with this uh, female who, who much younger than him. It's worth notice, noting, but like John Saxon was about sixty at this point, anyway. So um, still looking great, though. Yeah, you know, he 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 did good for himself. But uh, he's he sort of gives her a little hug or whatever, and he bites her on the shoulder, you know, like as a cannibal does. But it's like half titillating half like what you what you bite me for but anyways as they leave um she says to him i've never been bitten like that before which is one of the silliest lines of dialogue in movies <laughs> do you know what i mean like you know i've never been bitten like that before how often have you been bitten and do you know what i mean so uh, i just remember that very very silly line that's worth seeing cannibal apocalypse um we're we're talking her happy death day. I haven't seen because it's it's a Bloomhouse. It is uh, yeah. Groundhog Day. I wouldn't rush out for it, but it was it was precisely what I was in the mood for. I was like, I need some junk. There's a movie I saw. It's on Shudder. Do you have Shudder? Had it for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a movie called The Canal, which was it's it's. I'll, I'll try and sum this up briefly, but it's it's shot in Ireland, but with like a Welsh production company. And do, do you have you ever heard the term Euro pudding? Never. It's basically like if they make like so they make a movie for a predominantly American audience and they shoot it in like Prague, which is you know the which stands in for most European cities because it's cheap to film there, and they have a cast of like people from like Germany, Sweden, Holland, it doesn't matter, Italians, and they're all just speaking their natural accents, but to an untuned American ear, it's just like they all sound like they're from Europonia or whatever, and that's referred to as Euro pudding. Um, so. This movie, The Canal, was shot in Dublin. It's clearly Dublin because it's like the Royal Canal, you know. And um, the principal character is English. His wife is Swedish. And they have a son who's like the classic horror movie creepy kid who has like a, a thick Dublin accent. And he's like, Arita, how's it going? Or, kid, what's going on? And the mother's like, oh, little boy, go to bed. And he's like, hello there, mum and darling from Dublin. So I was so confused. I'd say watch it. It's called The Canal because um, you can watch it and go, ooh, I know there or ooh, I know there and then sort of have a little giggle at the at the bizarre accent placement. That's how it tasted My wise addiction That was the last time that I dreamed (laughs) 
Underpinned by a rattling snare drum belt. That's my wise addiction. That's track number eight. Does Paddy Hanna consider himself a wise human being at this stage of the game? Uh, I mean, I, I, I've learned things. Uh, wise, maybe not the word, but I know some stuff. Yeah, sure, why not? I mean, if you're only just starting in music and you would ask me some questions, uh, I might come off as wise. So... I'm sure I'm wise to someone, but I'm sure I'm also a buffoon to others. So, yeah. the um, I, I guess in that regard, if you do find yourself being asked questions about music, like, do you have that confidence to kind of? Because I, I don't get asked about you know like the music industry per se, but I've asked about journalism stuff and podcast stuff, whatever. And I just find myself always like everything. Everything gets a disclaimer. I'm always like, well, that's my, you know, like, I'm no expert. Like, you know, it's just like, it probably even goes back to like, you know, as you say, like getting one bad review amongst a sea of good things or yeah. not being able to take a compliment, yada, yada. But like, it is that kind of weird thing of just like, I don't know. I mean, like, are you able to kind of, are you at peace with the idea that people might very well be like, oh, fuck, I wonder what Patty Hannah thinks about that. Uh, I mean, like, you know, um, we all get older every second and, um, with every year that goes past, I want to talk less. You know, I want to be less lectury about music. It's like, you know, it's just my opinion if, if I say anything. And I'm wrong a lot of the time. And though there's nothing wrong with being incorrect, because that's how we learn and all this kind of stuff, I just don't want to be boring the ear off someone about my theories and all these kind of... I mean, who really cares? Um I used to be a bit lecturey to people like it, you know, I'd be there at a party just after too many drinks and this sort of undue confidence of someone who's like, let me tell you, let me, let me take you behind the, behind the curtain, the velvet curtain and show you how the industry really works. And like looking back, I'm like, who was I to assume I knew anything about um, the industry or whatnot? Um, so look, I'm sure if someone is interested and they want to have a chat about it, I'm sure I could probably say a thing or two, but ultimately, like, I'm not an expert and I actually am way more happier now not being that person as well. I don't want to be that person. I'm just the guy who shows up every couple of years with a new record, like like some sort of curse that returns. <laughs> they say every two years he comes back with another record on this night. So, yeah, <laughs> a mist sort of descends over Dublin and I, I emerge with like a box of vinyls and I'm like, please buy these because they're taking up a lot of space in my house. I think that like, I'm, I'm no vinyl expert as people who listen to the show will know, but I don't know, man, like, like, is it okay for me to say that this record sounds tailor made for it? Like, this is a very rich sounding album. Sonically, I think this track in particular does a good advertisement for that. Oh, well, um, it's funny you should say that because, ladies and gentlemen, Live on air, I'm going to present you with oh my god a vinyl. He actually is yes. across the table. Across the table, oh, it's, been, it's been it's been disinfected and everything. No, if um, you're still listening to this in 2025, there was a thing called the COVID 19 pandemic, and that's what we're referring to. There it is. Oh man, this is gorgeous. Thank you so much. I'm glad you brought that up because I would have forgotten and just brought it home with me. You know, no, I have just presented Dave with a copy of the Hill on vinyl. There, so. I'm absolutely delighted. Thank you because I am trying to build my collection. Yeah. 
But um, if I may stick on the Sonic point for a second, because I feel like I probably haven't talked about that enough. And you're right, there probably are a couple of muses listening, being like, when the fuck are they going to talk about like technical things? It's like whenever when I was a Viking splash thing, like when is he actually going to talk about the goddamn Vikings and stop making Sex in the City jokes? How come like <laughs> how come Dave was using this as jumping off points and not just sticking to the script? Um, yeah. So essentially, I mean, like, does this all come down to Daniel Fox? The overall kind of sound, the overall richness that I was referring to. Um, what's the line from the movie The Specialist? You were the rigger, I was the trigger. Classic line, classic yeah, film. Absolutely. <laughs> James Woods, back when he was t- um, palatable. Um, yeah, um, we, well, we have to a- agree on the aesthetic we're going for. As I say, like, Daniel is incredibly open to suggestion. Um, he doesn't suffer fools either. If he thinks something's a stupid idea, he will say it in a not especially polite fashion, which is completely fine. Um, generally, I will go in with, as I say, like I, I like the idea of leaving room for improvisation when you're recording. But in order to have that room for improv, you have to really be prepared from an aesthetic point of view. And by that, I mean, you need to know exactly what kind of tones you want the instruments to sound like. You want to have a lot of sonic reference points. Like, basically, you want a full list of tracks and notes on why that track is, because there might be, like, say, a little snare beat on it. So this is, what I'm saying is you've got to be super duper prepared with every reference point so that you can go in with the songs done and then you can kind of take the piss a little bit. Because you've created a very kind of, uh, basically, you're sort of, you're within a very safe box just throwing eggs about the place. Do you know what I mean? Um, so, so, yeah, for me, most of the prep is, with the exception of the songwriting, just building up a very particular aesthetic so that I can, so Daniel knows exactly what he's doing. I know exactly what we're doing. And now it's like, okay, give us a 10 minute guitar solo and let's just see what happens. You know? So. I think it's very important to have that kind of improv. And f- some of the notes and bits on this record were like improv on the spot or like we'd run into a room. It's like, oh, I've got an idea. Run in and just, you know, yodel or something. And maybe it m- might not make the cup, but, you know, that's the, the, the best way, as I say, for, for improvisation to happen is that you have to be super duper prepared. track number nine it's the hill it's a title track for some people a title track is like a 10 minute epic you know 10 minute guitar solo as you just referenced there a moment ago for you it's something of an interlude something of a kind of a i don't know like it, it felt like falling in and out of consciousness yeah so this one was had um th- this was the track that in some ways daniel had a hard time with and by hard time i mean keeping me out of the studio uh, because I kept wanting to tinker with this track. Um, I kept wanting to add to it. And he said, keep it simple, okay? We want to keep it simple. And um, it was a it was a struggle for him. And, um, 
yeah, I, uh, he won ultimately. Um, I did try and record a couple of things, and he, he, you know, he kept giving them the old kibosh. So, yeah, it's it's. I I see. I saw his point in the end. It's just like just let it be simple, you know. Because in my head, very often it's like, oh, we have to add, we have to add, we have to add. But you know, if you add too much, you can oversaturate. You can drown out the best qualities of the song. Certain melodies can get lost and whatnot. So yeah, we just opted for something incredibly simple, which was frightening to some degree. Because in many ways, this is like a it's a simple record in some ways. And to have a track like this one that's almost like a loop um, did did put the scares on me a little bit. Um, Adam Faulkner, by the way, that's him as the track opens hitting two logs off uh, slates. As you do. Yeah, um, that, that, that's, that's what the percussion was there. Um, and it's nice. It's, you know what it is? It's like the kind of... It sounds like a train slowly coming or, or into a station or slowly leaving a station. There's a nice little... Almost, there's also like a funeral march kind of element to it, and um, um, this song was not meant meant to be called "The Hill" originally. It had another name, but um, we had to change it. Well, on the gorgeous vinyl that you've just slid across the table, you've scratched out something like 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 as part of the artwork, as part of the presentation, it's part of the mystery. What was that song meant to be called? You're planting all these kind of pieces. Let's keep the mystery. I think. Yeah, it's going to be that kind of. It's a bit like with the eraser head, you know. David Lynch is like, I'm not telling you punks what this movie's about. <laughs> Y'all can go screw. It's an interesting uh, point for an interlude. I think it becomes apparent why in just a moment, and we'll get into track 10 in a second. But real quick, on the whole Dan Fox keeping you out of the studio thing, I'm picturing one of those, you know, those like uh, those movie posters from the 80s for those wacky comedies where like somebody would, uh, you know, like the wacky neighbor is coming over and like the put upon man in a suit who just wants to go home and take it easy is like standing back first against the door in the frame with his hands out and he's got this maniacal look on his face. All right. And you're like coming in over the top. And it was just like this con- like red font. It was this constant fucking comedy genre that like, seemed to only exist in the 80s. Made a bit of a comeback in a while. And it, it always made for just the worst film poster ever. Like it was like, oh, I bet that's a bit wild. It's a bit like late period Adam Sandler as well. So that's my boy and these kind of things where Precisely, it's like yeah. the one yeah you mentioned this, the kind of the suit wearing person with their kind of hands in their hips and their eyes to the sky and then the kind of the uh oh like cheaper person. by the dozen that kind of stuff where it's like oh my god there's oh. too many people in this house oh like, and the door is closed and it, yeah you can't um, close the door because it's just it's too wacky yeah the, I mean yeah there was that that's the thing like I, I, despite the album sort of tones or whatever I mean really are a bunch of goofballs uh, at one point, we needed kind of a, a release, and this is not going where you think it's going. By the way, <laughs> and we all undressed. Um, no, um, we we all just had a few beers, and we all just had a sing along to ABBA. You th- you know, listening to this record, you're not going to think that went on. But yeah, we had a lovely ABBA sing along, and there might have been a few tears as we cried singing along to SOS. Why'd you do it, darling? I cast my <laughs> eyes over Balscadden. To the jutting mound I call Beanser Rock. The saltwater pool that died at the hands of package holidays. Wondering where I sat in all this. A lone swimmer climbed out of the water looking ten years younger despite my never knowing her. I admit... I was envious 
I dreamed of swimming there in winter, but a school of jellyfish stung that dream away. I now fear the sea and the smell of malt vinegar. So I looked away, munched a corner of bread, and thought long and hard about my future. Track number 10 is the penultimate track on the record. It's called Jog On, Shall We? It is, in your own words, a journal entry. It's spoken word. And I will be honest with you, Patty. The first time I heard this song, I was like, I don't know if this works. I don't know if I'll go back to this. Mm-hmm. The second time I heard it, I was like, yeah, no, I'm in. <laughs> that's, that's the best thing I could possibly hear. Uh, uh, this, you know, the, the thing we wanted to achieve was we wanted to make a slow burn record, you know? And slow burn records don't tend to bowl you over in their first listen. They permeate and they grow. And um, so the fact that the fact that uh, it didn't appeal to you on first listen is poetry. I find it really hard to get away in on the first listen for sure. Like a second one makes all the difference, and then beyond that as well. It is again. I mean, like I find it works best listened to as a whole. Yeah. Um, like uh, I love albums. You know, I, I love the 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 package of a, of a record and. Which is why it's so important for me when you create a record to do all the research and to put it all within a certain frame so that everything sits within that certain atmosphere. I've done it for all three of my solo records. Um, they, they've all sat within, uh, like the first one we was in the early 70s. We had to create an early 70s atmosphere to the point that when we were recording it, we got a big bag of um, caffeine powder and we put it all over the place to emulate cocaine <laughs> because it was the 70s and um, we were doing the whole Fleetwood Mac thing. So, little, I mean, you know, obviously there was a lot more to it than just getting powdered caffeine. But um, um, so, yeah, uh, I, lo- I love listening to an album as a whole. And um, as I say, creating um, an atmosphere for every record is, is, is an important thing. With this track, by the way... Um, I contemplated calling the album Jog On, Shall We? with a question mark, but then I was just like, you're just giving the critics <laughs> the ultimate weapon. 100%, yeah. You know, Jog On, Shall We? I think we shall. One star. <laughs> Damn it. It reminds Take me. Take your own advice, Hannah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He asked us if we wanted to jog on, and I'm afraid the answer is yes. <laughs> uh, like Jennifer Love Hewitt. Is it Jennifer Love Hewitt? Yeah. The actor. She was in I Know What You Did Last Summer and all these things. She, like many... Um, young actors around the sort of early noughties or 2000s, whatever, tried to have a solo career. And her f- single, her first single was called Can I Go? Can I Leave Now? And the <laughs> critic just said, Yes, <laughs> one star. <laughs> Off you go, Hewitt. So, yeah, I thought, um, uh, you know, that it's just such a, it's a weapon uh, that I shall not deploy. Um, the, um, this song, um, you know, I, I I wouldn't exactly fall over myself to try and create spoken word songs, but this one was totally done on the fly. Same with Sinatra. It just fell out. Um, it was around two minutes in length. I think it was only two runs with the kind of... And I again, Captain Contrast here, I loved the mix of Miserable Fecker and then this sort of ebullient sort of... Um, cacophony of of joyful noise 
and Daniel really loved this demo. He was like, we're definitely using this. And I, my reaction was like yours. I was like, are you sure now? <laughs> you really think that's a good idea? But he insisted. Um, and he wanted to pad it out. So we added two more runs. So it's five and a half minutes long. Yeah, it's a solid five and a half, which I don't normally do. Um, normally, I, I, normally, I'm a neat three. But um, we went for a, a big long. And, and um, there is in the vault somewhere. Well, we were... While I was figuring out the song with the band, we recorded a version of it that's 17 minutes long. I want to hear it. Yeah. And what I did, what we did was I did an entire Viking Splash tour where it's like, instead of like, you know, the song opens with, you know, I wasn't expecting to write a journal entry today or whatever. But the other song says, welcome to Viking Splash, ladies and gentlemen. And I do an entire tour of Dublin with that same stupid monotone delivery. I was like... Um, on your left you will see the Italian quarter my point in that ad is not racist by the way I don't, I don't see how that is <laughs> there is the Italian quarter racist <laughs> I don't know how that worked yeah, that guy really bugged me but um, we'll leave him behind you know like, 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 like in the drift it's okay we'll but- leave him behind like we did on the day as we screeched off into the distance on a big yellow boat but yeah there is a 17 minute um, version of the song and, you mentioned um, the vocal delivery, the monotonous, or at least the monotone, rather, not monotonous. It's, yeah. it's a very exciting listener. But I mean, like, how did you record this one, or what did you use? Because it sounds like it's kind of recorded like an old dictaphone or something, and then I guess, like, slightly manipulated a little bit. It was, it was actually a fancy mic. Um, it was a, quite a fancy... It was like a microphone that was from the Ukraine, I think. Daniel loves getting um, former Soviet bloc um, instruments, and uh, or particularly microphones. You know, the craftsmanship of them, I suppose, just sound really cool. So it was a really fancy um, vocal mic. Uh, again, if he were here, he would tell you exactly what he did, but he added a bit of gravel to it. So it wasn't actually... Um, but, like, it was... We were emulating the style in which I recorded it, which was just, like, like leaning into my phone, speaking into the speaker and just adding a splash of grit to it, you know? Yeah. There's a moment in it when you're kind of addressing some of your, I guess, internal um, negativity and kind of like things that are bothering you on that day. Mm-hmm. Um, you mention you make a reference to a band by the name of Melts. Yeah. And you ask, does that bloke from Melts hate me? Yeah. What's going on there? It's just, you know, um, it, you know, it's a day in the life, essentially, this track. It's, it's going through, uh, like, boredom and monotony can be really interesting, you know, if, I, I like the idea of taking monotony and boredom and a sense of a total lack of fulfillment and making it something profound. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's it's something that I do, is, um, especially in, when, you're, when you're trying to be creative, which means you have to, you know, you procrastinate, you... Uh, you know, you'll do the dishes to try and oh, yeah, I'll do the dishes. That'll be that'll be good because then the dishes will be done. Or I'll pop something in the wash, and or, and and then suddenly you're just like, does that guy from Melts not? <laughs> and uh, I, it was really it, like for the record, I don't believe anyone from hate uh, Melts uh, does hate me, but it was just I thought it was a fun line to put in the track. <laughs> you know, I thought it was very kind of pavement-esque you know where he sort of name drops bands of the area or of the, of the era Foxy Timmy can't say I know who they are 
with Stone Temple Pilots and that kind of thing. And I thought, wouldn't it be cute to get it to uh, reference Melt? Yeah. Manufacture a nice feud along the way. Maybe he does now. Maybe he will. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then, like, the line you said. I was just asking the question. I'm not saying that you did. <laughs> you know? Jeez. Coliseum, it's the last track on the album. That's it. We made it, man. Yeah. How you feeling? Um, I I, I feel um, nice. Um, I, you know, it's funny as we wrap it, wrap or wrap it up. Um, you know, you, we go through all those questions that you've presented, and it makes me wonder. You know, uh, ultimately, there is part of me that is like, you know, making these kind of strange records um is kind of a you know it, it, there's part of me that's like oh why didn't i just take the easier road and do like a much poppier record you know but then you know i wouldn't have been truthful to have done that you know so it's i it's out in the ether uh i mean presumably by the time folks are listening to this it'll be out in the ether and it's out of my hands um so People can decide whether to love it, to loathe it, or to be somewhere in the middle, which, let's be honest, is the worst place, that dreaded middle of the road. But, um, you know, look, I, I just got to do what's what's right by me in a creative uh, sense. I'm obviously very grateful to everyone who's contributed to us, the two Dan's, Little Adam Faulkner, wonderful Jilly, uh, for doing all the vocals and the design and whatnot. And, um, yeah, I mean... That's this. This it's it's uh, the truth as I saw it at the time, and let's hope that uh, people respond to it nicely. We're gonna see. I suggest that they will. I think it's a fascinating record. I think it's a fascinating way to close this album as well, because uh, the spoken word jog on shall we could have been that ending, but this is almost like credits, I guess, and it's very jaunty and interesting. Uh, is it, like like is it is it a bit of a lost art? Like how to close an album? Um, I think generally speaking. Getting the song, the running order of an album right, it can be a real tricky one. It takes a while. I mean, it's like 11, 12 songs, just jumble them up, you know? <laughs> you know, but most people just hit the random button on Spotify anyways. Why do you put so much thought into it? But, you know, when you're trying to tell a story, that's the, that's the, the hard one. And as you mentioned, like, Coliseum does have a kind of, kind of closing credits feel to it. But the original choice was The Hill, the third last track. The idea being that, like, you know, sorry, folks, but much like AHA's take on me, <laughs> it doesn't turn out good. But we thought, now, you know what, like, let's let's see the light at the end of the tunnel. Let's end with Coliseum, which is, 
much more hopeful. Um, so the album ends on a hopeful uh, note. Um, but um, yeah, uh, it is. It, it, it like. I do love a. I'm just thinking of all the last tracks I've ever done. Usually they're very lasty, last tracky, <laughs> fading out and whatnot. Um, I th- is it a lost art? I don't know. I've never really thought about that, to be honest with you. Um, I think even the album itself, for some people, is a lost art. As you say, I mean, like, there are people who will never listen to it in sequence, um, which is insane to me, but, you know, that's, that's kids for you, you know? <laughs> That's the generation. Don't tr- don't throw youths under oh, yeah, sorry, the bus. Yeah, oh, yeah, I'm the government over here. It's all the youth's fault. But no, I don't know. I mean, like, I think ultimately for an artist, making an album should be that thing, right? It should be that kind of A to B to C thing in the proper, proper way. But it can be, I guess it can take on a life of its own. Uh, I guess um, don't ever, it's best not to um, uh, to judge anyone's uh, theories on music or it's not, it, like, you know, in much the same way that the second you start saying stuff like, you know, the second you become that get off my lawn person, that's the moment you sort of creatively um, just lose it. You know, it's always important to be mindful of what's going on around you in cre- uh, creatively. You could either do the Bowie thing of I'm going to ride it like a wave and I'm going to take modern elements and work them into my stuff or just to be mindful of it. But it's weird because people always... Like, I, I always get the kind of like, oh, you like the 60s, do you? Do you like Richard Hawley? And I'm like, I do. I like both of them. But, you know, I have a mind towards lots of stuff. But ultimately, when it comes to, you know, I want to make music that sort of please my ears. So it's like music that's tuned to my ears. And I just hope that people will hear us and think, the guy's got an all right set of ears. So that's just how I do it. Like, But I think it's, very important to be mindful of how music develops and all these kind of things. And as far as the album goes, it's never going to go away, I don't think. Although it's still a very recent thing, like the 50s, really, when the album properly came to be. So maybe it will die a horrible death. But if it does, poop to that, I say. Well, look, congratulations on The Hill. And I wish you luck with writing your uh, EDM chart banger feature heavy album that you're going to do next for Googie. It's time to cash those chips in, Dave. <laughs> Paddy Hanna, thank you so much, man. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. That was Paddy Hanna, and that was an epic encounter indeed. Thank you to Paddy for taking the time, and of course for that beautiful vinyl copy of The Hill that he smoothly slid across the table in my direction midway through proceedings. The album is out now, and I would heartily recommend picking it up. As I said at the start of the show, this is one of the most original listens of 2020. It won't be for everybody, but the rewards are there, and they are many. Next time when the encore goes track by track in this format, it will be with rising Dublin hardcore turned hip hop maestro Nilo on the microphone, taking us through his debut record, All the Leaves Are Falling, which lands on Friday, the 30th of October. Our episode will land the following week, and you'll even get our very own Sonic Architect Adam on the microphone for that one as well, because he produced the album. Thank you for all the kind comments in this series so far. I have my eye on a few more before the year is out, and we'll see how we go, and indeed how the series continues when 2021 rolls around. Regular No Encore episodes every Friday in the meantime, of course, talking all things music and our signature top five countdowns. This week, we'll be talking about best and worst TV show theme songs. Lots to choose from there. 
So tune in and support us on Patreon if you can spare a few quid. It goes an awful long way, especially when I just don't know when Craig and I are going to get back into the studio on a full-time basis, heartbreaking as that reality is. Uh, at the, like, I think we're going to have to upgrade my equipment, and we'll see how we go from there. But uh, hopefully we can get back in the studio. I miss it like crazy. I miss Craig like crazy. But as, as I said before, we are doing our very best. We are trying our very best. We are thriving week on week. Uh, sometimes, as in the most recent episode, you can hear how frazzled we are. But I don't know. Maybe that gives some extra charm and conviction. I don't know, guys. You tell me. But it's patreon.com slash noencore if you'd like to help us out. Your support is truly invaluable. And thank you again for everyone who said nice things about this series so far and for the artists themselves for taking the time to talk to us about it. Something a bit different and something I've really, really enjoyed doing. My name is Dave Hanratty. This has been No Encore, discussing The Hill by Patty Hanna, which is out now. There will be No Encore every Friday and there will be more No Encore track by track very, very soon. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. This is Peacock. I love it! It's streaming your favorite shows, movies, live sports, breaking news, exclusive originals. It's The Office. That's what she said. Chrisley Knows Best. It's going to be Todd's Way or the Highway. And Peacock original shows like Punky Brewster. Holy mackinole. So whether you're in the mood for every live WWE pay-per-view or every episode of Law & Order SVU... Peacock's got you covered. Peacock. Watch for free. Upgrade for more. Stream now at PeacockTV.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.